Grace, mercy, and peace to you from God, our Father, and our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Dear friends in Christ, last Sunday as we gathered here for worship in the Western Caribbean Sea, a broad, low-pressure area coalesced into a tropical depression. Michael, the 13th named storm of the season. By the next day, it was a hurricane near the western tip of Cuba, elevated temperatures in the Gulf of Mexico, and plummeting pressure within the storm quickly accelerated it. And on Tuesday, Michael quickly ticked up the list. Category one, two, three. Wednesday morning when I was outlining the sermon, Governor Scott advised to shelter in place. The time to evacuate was gone. Michael came ashore as a category four hurricane with 155 mile an hour sustained winds. The New York Times wrote, Hurricane Michael took millions of residents by surprise intensifying from a tropical storm to a major hurricane in just two days and leaving little time for preparations. The time to run was gone. But today, I'd like to speak about an even greater challenge, one from whom we cannot run either, and we cannot hide. The writer to the Hebrews sounds the warning. Watch out, brothers, sisters, that there is not in any of you an evil heart of unbelief that turns away from the living God. It's a warning. It's even more. It's a call to arms. But let's stop for a minute. What is being threatened? It's not the heart. In fact, it seems as if the heart is the disputed territory, the battleground. And an evil heart sounds precisely like the enemy, and faith is the victim. Faith. The free gift of God in Christ Jesus, which we receive in baptism by the Spirit. No one can come to me, Jesus says in John 6, unless the Father who sent me draws him. Scripture represents natural man as devoid of any capacity for believing the gospel, even an enemy. 1 Corinthians 2, the natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. And then on the positive side... Scripture declares faith to be the product of divine grace and almighty power. Philippians 1, unto you is given to believe on him. It's a new birth of God. In John 1, to him, them that believe on his name, which were born of God. It's a resurrection from the dead. Colossians 2, you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. Peeper summarizes it this way. Not for a moment does Scripture leave it in doubt that conversion is affected solely by God. Thanks be to God for the gift of faith. Thanks be to God for the gift of the Spirit, for the gift of baptism in which we can all declare, I am a child of God. Through water and word, the word included in God's command and combined with God's word as we teach in our small catechism. But back to that text from Hebrews 3. Watch out! There is a constant need to defend against what the letter calls an evil heart of unbelief. This heart, the one we just celebrated as being washed clean in baptism, is the heart leading you to fall away, our translation has it. Others translate, a heart of unbelief that turns away. The verb here is the root for our word apostasy. It can be a dramatic falling away. But more often, I suspect, it simply fades away. 
In his novel, A Hundred Years of Solitude, Garcia Marquis describes in his magical but realistic way a, a village that's suffering from a plague of insomnia. And as it continues, it gradually causes a loss of memory. To try and salvage memory, Jose, one of the villagers, develops an elaborate plan that involved labeling. With an inked brush, Garcia writes, he marked everything with its name. Table, chair, clock, door, wall, bed, pan. He went out on the in the corral and marked the animals and plants. Cow, goat, pig, hen, banana. As their memory continued to fade, Jose decided he needed a more elaborate effort. So he posted a sign on a cow that read, this is the cow. She must be milked every morning so that she will produce milk. And the milk must be boiled in order to be mixed with coffee to make coffee and milk. Thus, they were living in a reality that was slipping away, momentarily captured by words, but which would escape when they forgot the value of the written letters. Eventually, the village put a placard at the entrance of the town that read, God exists, as that knowledge also was slipping. Garcia, of course, writes fiction. It's a novel. But it is also a commentary on our culture. God is fading away from our institutions, from our interactions, both public and private, from our lives. God gave us faith, but it remains our task to maintain it. Luther warned pretty much the same thing when he wrote, I would advise no one to send his child where the Holy Scripture is not supreme. Every institution that does not unceasingly pursue the study of God's word becomes corrupt. I greatly fear that the universities, unless they teach the Holy Scripture diligently and impress them on the young students, are a wide gate to hell. Close quote. So how do we maintain faith? Well, through word and worship and sacraments. Through these, the Holy Spirit strengthens and equips. But watch out, brothers and sisters. No one is exempt from the deceitfulness of sin, as it's called in verse 13. So what exactly does that look like? Well, deceitfulness uses a sliding scale. It seeks to minimize the size and effect of sin. It talks about white lies, right? It compares my sin with that of notorious sinners. Deceitful also seems to deflect the effects of sin. No one was hurt, it says. It creates that specious category of victimless sins. Deceitfulness also preempts the question, right? In the garden, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And then the second half of our text, verses 16 to 18, asks five rhetorical questions that illustrate the deceitfulness of sin. Who were those who heard and yet rebelled? With whom was he angry? To whom did he swear, you will not enter my rest? The writer points to the generation of the Exodus. The citation in the center of our reading comes from Psalm 95, which he quotes at length earlier in the chapter. Psalm 95 recounts the rebellion of Numbers, chapter 14, when the report of the spies was received and, quote, all the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron. Would that we had died in the land of Egypt. Which frankly seems absolutely astounding. These were the very people who walked across the dry bed of the Red Sea. 
the people who stood at Sinai, who stood at Sinai when God descended with smoke and lightning and the blaring of trumpets, they'd seen the glory of the Lord appear in the wilderness and go before them by cloud and by fire. But before we point the finger too fast, you too have seen and felt the water of baptism splash on your forehead. You too have tasted the bread and wine. You heard the word of absolution. You are forgiven. You also are in danger. So let me summarize this first portion of the sermon this way. Yesterday's faith does not save you. Does not save me today. Because no sinner ever has his or her sin under control. Imperceptibly, yet certainly, arteries harden until the fact is suddenly manifest. A dead body, heart attack or stroke. Sin has the very same hardening effect. Therefore, verse 13, encourage one another every day as long as it is called today. In the movement associated with John Wesley, people would get together into communities to, want to hold each other accountable. Wesley called it watching over each other in love. But before anybody entered into this community, they were asked a series of questions to see if they were serious about mutual accountability. These are some of the questions. Does any sin, inward or outward, have dominion over you? Do you desire to be told your faults? Do you desire to be told your faults and that plain and clear? Consider, do you desire that we should tell you whatsoever we think, whatsoever we fear, whatsoever we hear concerning you? Do you desire that in doing this we should come as close as possible, that we should cut to the quick and search your heart to the bottom? Huh, that's not our world. You're right. We live in a hyper-individualized, self-seeking, self-centered society. In 1875, William Henley in his poem Invictus famously wrote, I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. Well, I would suggest that our society is up the ante. We would declare, I am the measure of all things. And it is leading us separately astray into apostasy. The writer to the Hebrews exhorts us to reclaim community, the community of believers, the congregation, He's not an anomaly. In fact, she's a common feature. He shows up in every group, every community. He's the problem guy. The odd guy or gal. Because of a pattern of speech or uh, bodily manners or a physical build that pushes them to the margin. The one who's better at battling against the core objectives of our group instead of encouraging us. He's not with the program. She criticizes all the time. They ask the wrong questions of the wrong time to the wrong person. One who suddenly, by way of announcement, declares, I'm not sure what I believe, but I'm sure I don't believe that. Whatever form he or she appears, it's the problem guy. And the problem with the problem guy is not his offensive appearance or her attitude not their lack of spiritual depth, all of which may be true. The problem with the problem guy or girl is your problem. We can't ignore the exhortation to mutual accountability. 
Wesley seems way over the top to our ears, but we need to recognize, take ownership to live out the mutual discipleship this text enjoins. It's catechesis. It's working together. It's asking the hard questions and being there for one another. It's taking down one of the pictures and names off that bulletin board and praying for our kids. You can't just pass it off as, well, that's what you believe. Today, encourage one another, the writer of the Hebrews declares, for we remain partakers of Christ if only we hold on to the foundational basis as something firm until the end. It means being faithful today, in community, every day. Day upon day, it becomes a legacy. Being participants of partakers in Jesus' love, living in, living out our baptism, not on our own steam, but by the power of the Spirit. Chemnitz in the formula wrote, that God who has called us is so faithful that when he has begun a good work in us, he will also continue it to the end and complete it. If we do not turn away from him, but remain steadfast to the end in that which he has begun. God gives strength in the face of the challenges today, all day, as long as it is called today, that we may enter into his rest. What day is it? Well, it's today, a time of grace, a Sabbath rest that anticipates God's eternal Sabbath rest that is our inheritance in Christ. Amen. Now may the peace which surpasses all understanding guard your hearts and minds through faith in Christ Jesus to life everlasting. Amen.